Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Thank you for joining us this week. We are now in week 45, week 45 for the week of November 6th through 12th. I hope you had a great Guy Fox day um, yesterday on a Saturday, um, and now we're ready to continue reading through the New Testament, James chapter 4 through 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay, so we, we began last week the book of James. We're going to be going into 1 Peter. Uh, I'm not going to give uh, some stats, those background information we usually do for the books um, on the Peter, on 1 Peter. We'll do that next week whenever we do 1 Peter and 2 Peter together. Um, we'll kind of give some quick facts about uh, what we're reading there. But we're going to continue now reading in the book of James. And and James is a book, remember, these people are suffering. These people are being persecuted. And yet the persecution is, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they're being called to endure, to persevere. But there's also some some opportunities that are happening here, and some they're being tempted to sin, and and also they're maybe showing partiality, and so here James is calling them back to faithfulness to Jesus Christ, to live in His grace, and that um, their faith needs to be a faith that works, that shows forth love to our neighbor. So I've got um, a couple things to read from James, and this is coming from Bob Hiller. Again, he is the senior pastor of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido, San Marcos, California. Um, he writes this on 1517.org, um, uh, and also he is a co-host on the uh, online radio show podcast, The White Horse Inn. And again, I'm just blamelessly uh, you know, stealing this Um or I should say not blamelessly, shamelessly really is what I should say. I'm shamelessly stealing this from their website, um, and you can read it online for free um, um, there. But he is uh, obviously, again, we've pointed this out, they're writing this for preachers to kind of give preaching tips about what you could do with a passage. And uh, I've morphed it into devotional material. Um, so let's do this now. James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through four ten. 10. Um, here James is is uh, talking about the tongue. And then he, in verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So let's, let's read about this and see what we have to learn in this passage. Is ambition a good thing or a bad thing? It was not so long ago I viewed ambition as a virtue. Making a name for yourself, rising above your peers, achieving the American dream. These are ambitious goals. And according to the wisdom of our world, such ambition is indeed a good thing. We are taught in school to dream big dreams, to make audacious goals, while never letting anyone stand in your way. It is this last line, that we should never let anyone stand in our way, which exposes the problem with being ambitious. It is utterly selfish. If we want to see a concentrated experiment in ambition, we need, look to, we need to look no further than reality television. Now, I will be honest, I do not watch reality TV anymore, but I remember getting caught up in the hype of shows like Survivor or The Bachelor. Okay, full disclosure, I have never seen The Bachelor and would like to keep it that way. These shows offered people a great deal of money or the love of some rich young hunk, but they had to compete to win. The ambitious goal of victory did not come easy or cheap. Quite often, you had to sabotage others to get what you wanted. I remember watching the most, ahem, 
virtuous of these shows, The Biggest Loser, in which people competed to see who could lose the most weight, establish a healthy lifestyle, and win a lot of money. Friendships were created and then destroyed as contestants used each other to reach their goals. At the end of one episode, one contestant was found to have betrayed someone who had trusted them only to respond, I didn't come here to make friends. I came here to win. This is the wisdom of the world James speaks of today. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It is one thing to see such an attitude in a faux reality competition show, but it is quite another when it comes to our daily lives. How often do we hear phrases like, it is only business, or all is fair in love and war, or some such sentiment? Such selfish attitudes breed success in the eyes of the world. She did all she could to achieve her goals, and now look at her success, even if she had to lose friends along the way. This worldly wisdom comes from an idolatry of the world's pleasures, what James calls friendship with the world. It is a covetousness which produces quarrels, fights, and even murder. And it has no place in the heart of the Christian. God calls his church to a different sort of wisdom altogether. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. When is the last time you heard of anyone pursuing the American dream extol meekness? Gentle, peaceable, reasonable people do not make it in Washington or on Wall Street. Sincerity is fine so long as it sells. The wisdom from heaven lived out perfectly in the life of Jesus, finds no friends in this world. James calls us today to repent of our selfish ambition and pursuit of friendship with the world. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will extol you. James preaches in such a manner so we would turn from selfish pursuits and the lustful temptations of pushed back-alley addictions by that wayward friend, the world. Be turned from friendship with the world. It leads to death. And draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. After all, selfish ambition ruins you and everyone around you. But he gives more grace. It is from this God the wisdom from heaven who came down in our flesh to to befriend sinners, you will learn true wisdom. Christ is the wisdom from above. The way of the world that is so focused on self-preservation, selfish ambitions, and vain pursuits of glory contrasts utterly with the way of Christ, who set aside his glory to take up a cross for the sake of others. The idea of worshiping a Jewish man whose ministry resulted in his crucifixion is foolish to the world as are the virtues which flow from such a God, mercy, meekness, gentleness, and so on. Christ's only ambition was death on the cross for sinners. So, he now calls us his friends. Unlike our reality TV stars, Jesus did to come here to make friends, not with the world, but he befriends us sinners so captivated by this world that he might rescue us and reconcile us to God. He is the God James calls us to draw near to, for he draws near to us. Wow, that's that's really good stuff, isn't it? Christ is the wisdom that came down from above. And we're called to meekness and mercy and gentleness and peaceableness. 
And that is really true, isn't it? The how, how ambition can be lauded in our society, not simply the virtue of like being diligent or good work or having a good work ethic, but sometimes those words can actually be cloaking ambition. And that is a, a very th- big thing that we all need to, to wrestle with because we all want to prove ourselves at some level, I think. And we need to be content and be able to rest in Christ and when we're resting in Christ, we're able then to live out of that to where we love other people because we don't have to use them uh, to compete against them uh, or to get what we want because we have everything we need in Christ. Okay, one last thing from James before we move on to First Peter. Uh, this is again from Bob Hiller uh, about James uh, chapter 5. James chapter 5 here, which opens up with the verse, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. Um, And then also eventually he talks about uh, faith at the very end. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise and so on. And Bob Hiller writes this. I will never forget the high school chapel where I was promised God would give me a new bike if I only asked. I attended Denver Lutheran High. Go lights where we had regular chapel services. We would have a variety of pastors or teachers speak to us about the word of God. But one week... We had a former NFL player who came to speak to us about prayer. The former Bronco, whose name escapes me now, told us Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. And he meant it. I know this, he theologized, because when I was a kid, I prayed the Lord would give me a new red bike. My parents couldn't afford it, but I knew if I prayed hard enough, Jesus would give me that bike. Then Christmas morning, I walked into the living room and there it was, my red bike, my answer to prayer. His point was Jesus will always answer your prayers if you just believe enough. Such teaching is wrought with theological problems. They are easy to spot, right? Turning Jesus into a genie and prayer into a demand for material blessings does not quite capture the biblical gift of prayer. Telling impressionable kids God will give them whatever they want if they just ask the right way is a recipe for unbelief when God fails to come through. Misusing God's name by ripping Bible verses out of their context and forcing them to make promises God never intended is misguided at best and a blasphemous breaking of the second commandment at worst. One cannot just carte blanche promise God will answer any prayer we pray, right? But then, what do we do when James comes along and tells us if someone is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray for him and God will raise him up? He goes so far as to say, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James makes it sound like prayer is actually effective, that God listens. God answers in line with our requests. Does James realize the questions he is raising? Does this mean prayer will automatically heal the sick? Does this mean God will do whatever I demand? Does this mean my NFL chaplain was right to tell me to request the bike? But then, where is my bike? Where is my healing? Where is the healing for my child with cancer? Was God not listening? Did we not have enough faith? Does prayer only work for a select few? Why does prayer not work for me? James preaches prayer like one who believes what Jesus taught about it. God does indeed answer the prayers of the righteous, that is, his, ba- his beloved baptized children. 
but there is a marked difference between the cry of faith for healing, forgiveness, and mercy, and the requirement for God to meet my demands. The former is prayer. The latter is tempting God. This is not what James speaks of today. He declares the reality that our Father in heaven is working his will on earth as he does in heaven, and we are simply asking him to do it for us too. To such praying, God's answer is, yes and amen in Christ Jesus. This is true, as James says, with complete confidence in Christ, even for prayers of healing and forgiveness. The question is never if our Father will answer the prayers of the righteous, namely the baptized, but when. James speaks in the future tense today when he says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Raise him up is resurrection language, which points us back to James's exhortations a few verses earlier to be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is a time of suffering and hardship, of sin and sickness, of longing and prayer. But James promises faith will turn to sight, prayer will turn to praise. Christ, who forgives your sins and heals your diseases, will return and make all this right. So we pray in faith, longing for that day knowing he can full well heal in a moment, in a month, or on the last day. Prayer is faith in the promise that he will. So, we pray for God's will to be done in this way. God listens to that prayer, takes it into account, and says, Yes, dear child, it shall be so in spite of the devil and all the world. He may not give you a red bike, but he will raise you up, forgiven and whole, body and soul, to dwell in his presence forever. That is, again, very helpful um, teaching about what we believe about prayer and uh, how it works in our lives. And, and I, I think that was, that's, that's a really big temptation, actually, to believe if I only believe this amount of, uh, if, I have, if I can muster up this amount of confidence, then God will, um, then God will answer my prayer. And that kind of teaching is found a lot of different places, um, even in churches that you might be surprised about. But that's not the way faith works, and that's not the way prayer works. Faith is simply taking God at his word, and as, as Bob Hiller there points out, um, God may answer our prayers tomorrow. He may answer them to, to, you know, uh, today, but he may also answer them on that last day, the resurrection day. And that's ultimately our hope, isn't it? That last day, whenever he will put all things back to right. And we pray in light of that day, looking forward to it. Okay, so now we turn our attention to First Peter. First Peter. And for this, I want to read, um, I want to use something from a guy named Don Carson, D.A. Carson. He is Emeritus Professor of New Testament at a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Um, and he has this book called For the Love of God. And it is a, um, well, it's a commentary of sorts through the that gives you uh, devotional thoughts upon the readings for the Robert Murray McShane plan. Some of you may have heard that. It's a plan to help you read through the Bible, the whole Bible in a year. Very popular. But he has a commentary that you can actually find online for free um, that gives you, uh, that uh, walks through and gives you comments upon each day's read, you know, at least one section of each day's reading, uh, kind of giving you um, some thoughts and devotions upon that passage. It's 
pretty cool stuff. You can find it online, and if you're interested in it, uh, just let me know, and, and I can I can give you the link and, and help you find it. Um, so we're going to do this today from uh, 1 Peter um, today, and not, not chapter 1, um, because 1 Peter does open up there with a beautiful um, Peter, uh, the the uh, opens up with this beautiful uh, section where he says, um, Blessed uh, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then in the next section, he has... Uh, for chapter 2, and then Dia Carson has some comments here on these verses, 13 through 17, which say this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to him to, by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So let's see what uh, D.A. Carson has to say to us about these verses um, here in this devotion. And, and like I said, maybe this would be something in the future that you might like to, to use as well. He says this, the short paragraph, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, is filled with moral admonitions found elsewhere in the New Testament. In today's meditation, I shall briefly clarify the main points and observe the supporting themes around the paragraph. First, like Paul in Romans 13, Peter tells his readers to submit to every properly constituted human authority, and to do so for the Lord's sake. Implicitly, Peter acknowledges that such human authorities were set up by God, and their proper function, or at least one of them, is to foster justice. Second, it is always God's will that Christians, by doing good, should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Behavior stamped by courtesy, respect, and integrity is not itself preaching the gospel, but it wins a hearing for the gospel, simultaneously preparing a way for it and authorizing it. Third, our freedom from the law covenant must never become an excuse for licentiousness. Live as servants of God. Finally, it is always right and good to show proper respect to everyone. Everyone is made in the image of God. But what proper means may take on different overtones with different ranks. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. The surrounding verses provide support for this outlook. A. Christians are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Their very existence designed to declare the praise of the one who called them out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The transformation of Christians' conduct is the attestation that they really do belong to God. B, this also means that we no longer belong to the world. Here we live as aliens and strangers. If we do not think in those terms, but are frankly comfortable with the world and its ways, we ought to question whether or not we really belong to the people belonging to God. This is the assumption Peter makes when he writes, Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See if any of this involves hardship or suffering, as it especially did in the case of slaves who belonged to cruel and unjust masters. We can never forget that we follow a master who himself suffered most unjustly. No moral value attaches to suffering what we deserve. We show ourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ when we suffer unjustly and endure it faithfully. To this you were called 
because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The next day is uh, 1 Peter 3. Um, Peter now is writing about husbands and wives suffering for righteousness sake and so on. And D.A. Carson has this to say about that chapter. One of the striking things about 1 Peter is how Christian conduct is tied to winning a hearing for the gospel. We saw that theme in yesterday's meditation. Christians are to live in such a way that even the pagans will be forced to glorify God. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. The same theme is developed in chapter 3. Wives with unbelieving husbands should so adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit that their husbands may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. Similarly, in 1 Peter 3, 8-22, this passage includes one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament, one I cannot hope to broach here, but it also once again connects Christian conduct with Christian suffering and therefore with Christian witness. This does not mean that Christian conduct has a merely utilitarian function. Christians are not to act in godly ways simply because it increases their credibility for propagandistic purposes. There are many reasons for doing good. We were called to it. Doing good is constitutive of our very identity. Moreover, such behavior inherits blessing from God. Apart from the horrible exceptions that arise out of corrupt regimes and renegades, all too many of them, A citizen doing good does not have to fear oppression from those in charge of criminal justice systems. We ourselves ought to keep a clear conscience before the living God. Above all, there is the example of Jesus Christ. But in addition to all these reasons for living godly lives, Peter again connects conduct with witness. Even if we suffer unjustly, we will not live our lives in fear as pagans must. Rather, in our tears, we will set apart Christ as Lord. We will sanctify or consecrate Christ as Lord. And in this context, we will hear the apostolic injunction. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is similar to Paul's be prepared in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4.2. Of course, such readiness presupposes a heart attitude eager to witness and a commitment to grow in in, in, in apologetic competence. As in so many other areas of life, we learn best how to do it by doing it. But Peter's immediate point is that as we bear witness, we must do so with gentleness and respect, so that those who speak maliciously may be ashamed of their slander. Well, there you have it. Maybe you've uh, listened to that and you're thinking that might be the kind of thing um, that I would like to have for my Bible reading plan um, to help me out um, just to kind of chew a little bit more on the word to think about it, what it's, what it's saying uh, to us. Well, next week, we're going to continue in First Peter, going into Second Peter, um, walking right on through the New Testament. We've only got a few weeks left um, as we head towards the wrap up the rest of these epistles. And before we wrap up the very last uh, bit with the book of Revelation, the uh, Revelation of John. And so... Um, Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I thank you for listening to this, and I hope it's encouraging to you as you read through the New Testament. I hope this gives you some material to think about and to grow um, in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening to this, and uh, take care, and God bless.